Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew 3, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 4, verses 17 to 23. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of, who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so, something we've talked about before uh, is that the Bible really has a remarkable way of being so complex that you could spend an entire lifetime, a thousand lifetimes, trying to plumb the depths uh, of Scripture and never hit the bottom. And though that is true, and there's this great complexity to the Word of God, there's also this simplicity that even a child can understand the central truths of the Bible. Of the Bible. And there's probably no topic that I think gets at this tension of complexity and yet simplicity than the topic of the kingdom of God. There has been endless wrestling with the concept of the kingdom over the years. Uh, in the 20th century alone, one researcher who was trying to develop a bibliography of, uh, on the subject of the kingdom of God, he discovered that there were over 10,000 publications on just the kingdom of God alone in the 20th century. The reason being is to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God, is actually a hard question. It might seem like an easy question, but when we consider how the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, we discover that it is far more complex often than we sometimes anticipate. What I mean is, you know, is the kingdom of God to come one day? Yes. Is the kingdom of God also present now? Yes. Is the kingdom spiritual? Yes. Is the kingdom physical? Yes. Is the kingdom in heaven? Yes. Is the kingdom on earth? Yes. Is the church part of the kingdom? Yes. Is the whole world part of the kingdom? Yes. I mean, the complexities of understanding how these things work together are vast. Yet, in the midst of that complexity, we also hear the words of Matthew, that Jesus came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that the message of Jesus is the kingdom of God. It is what makes Jesus good news. It's the kingdom. So how then should we think about the kingdom, especially when every week 
we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Well, today we continue our series called Thy Kingdom Come. Last week, we, we, uh, we began the series considering uh, not so much the kingdom, but rather the character and the nature of the king. And now next week, we're going to begin looking at kind of the values of the kingdom. But this week, what I want to do is I want to wrestle together with what the kingdom of God is, where it is, and who is in it so that we have a foundation for knowing how best to approach what it means to see the kingdom as gospel, as good news. So to do that, let's consider just two things today. First, I want to take a look at the complexities of the kingdom. And then second, I want to take a look at the simplicity of the kingdom. Okay? Let's look at both. The complexities. Uh, on the front end of this, I'm just going to apologize now for possibly leaving uh, some of your heads spinning. There is a reason why this point is called the complexities of the kingdom. So buckle up. Here we go. As I said, defining the kingdom of God is no small task because of the way the Bible speaks about the kingdom. Let me just give you a little taste of what I mean by that. So in Matthew 12, Jesus says that because he casts out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But then in Matthew 26, Jesus at the Last Supper speaks of his father's kingdom coming in the future. So which is it? Has the kingdom come or is it to come one day? Another example would be Matthew 25 speaks of a kingdom uh, being a place of salvation and inheritance and blessing. But then in chapter 13, it speaks of the kingdom being a place of judgment. So which is it? Is the kingdom a place of salvation or is it a place of judgment? Luke 1 speaks of the kingdom being Jesus' ruling on a throne that lasts forever. But then later on in Luke 22, the kingdom is said to be a place assigned to Jesus. So which is it? Is the kingdom Jesus' rule and reign on a throne or is it a place where he rules and reigns on a throne? These tensions are the reasons why theologians have postulated and wrestled with the kingdom for generations. You know, the classic vision and understanding of the kingdom often asserts that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and that it exists in the hearts of individuals and anything really tangible about the kingdom is really something that's going to happen in the future. Others, conversely, have said, well, no, the kingdom is actually more social in nature, meaning that the kingdom has already come. And so because it has already come, our concern should be what Jesus describes in Matthew 23 is the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy. In other words, because the kingdom has come, we should pursue an end to poverty and oppression and injustice and exploitation. And that's, that's what the kingdom of God being near is about. Still others, other theologians, have postulated and considered and thought about the fact that, well, maybe the church is the kingdom. So maybe the, the people of God is the kingdom. And if the kingdom is the church, and if the church grows and expands through conversions and people um, coming to faith in Jesus, that means that the kingdom of God is growing and expanding because the church is growing and expanding. Now, those kinds of things that theologians have tried to wrestle with, that list is anything but comprehensive. There are many different perspectives. But here's, what, here's why I laid this out, why I present some of this to you. It's because in the end, each of those perspectives actually has validity to them. And if we get the kingdom of God wrong, 
If we don't consider all these potential nuances and perspectives and vantage points of the kingdom, if we don't consider them all, then we end up falling into error about what the kingdom is. And the, the error and the consequence can be significant. Let me show you what I mean. All right, can think about uh, if you were to consider and believe that the kingdom is mostly just a spiritual thing, that uh, it's both a spiritual thing that happens in the hearts of us as people, and that it's also about something just to come, right? So there's nothing really tangible about it right now. It's just spiritual or to come one day. If that's the case, look at verse 2 of our passage. Verse 2 of our passage ends up making no real sense because what does it say? It says that we're not awaiting a kingdom that will come because, according to what we see there, the kingdom has already come near. Just to push that point. But conversely, if we only think about the kingdom as being uh, just right now, and we don't have a vision for the kingdom that is to come one day, what do we do with passages like Revelation 21 that speak of a day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes, there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. Of course, we know that none of that has happened now, so there must be something more that is to come. This tension is why theologians, for example, have created what maybe you've heard and we've talked about before, the already not yet concept of the kingdom. Meaning that the kingdom of God has come, and as a result, there are characteristics and expectations and reflections of that kingdom that ought to be seen and experienced now. However, at the same time, we cannot assume that the fullness of that kingdom will be experienced now because it is still to come in the fullness one day when Jesus returns and restores all of creation completely and fully. This is important because, again, there are real consequences for not holding the already not yet intention. For example, think about what happens if we overly think about the kingdom being present now. The consequence of a kingdom now, overly thinking about it now, is that we'll have very unrealistic expectations about the kingdom and what we should be experiencing now. Now, for example, there are some who would assume that the promises of the kingdom ought to be fulfilled now. So when we hear promises like Isaiah 53 that by his wounds we are healed, you know, in passages like that we are promised healing. Or other passages like Jeremiah 29, which we speak of often. Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the more famous passages of the Bible, for, the, uh, for, the, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Right? We can hear these kinds of promises, promises that are true about the kingdom of God. But if we assume that the kingdom, if we overly assume the kingdom is now and present, we will overly believe that those are the kinds of things we should experience now. That we should experience healing now. Or that we should never be in any kind of want now. Or that we should have a prosperous life or family or relationship now when those promises, the fullness of those promises of healing, of restoration, of um, being able to have this prosperity is really something that comes one day in its fullness, in a kingdom that is completely restored, a kingdom we have not yet experienced. So on the one hand, to think about the kingdom as being present now and only now, we'll have unrealistic expectations. The flip side of that, though, is this. There is a flip side consequence because to only see the kingdom of God as something to come without realizing that the kingdom is present now comes with its own issues. As I said, there are those who see the kingdom as simply about an age to come. 
They see it as a spiritual kingdom or something that happens in the hearts of individuals. And in that sense, the kingdom of God just becomes this abstraction, becomes this metaphysical idea with no real tangible realities now. But look at uh, our passage, particularly verse 23 on. When Jesus begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom, what do we see? We begin to see healing and liberation from spiritual oppression. Luke 4 says something similar where Jesus is describing himself uh, that he has been anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The presence of God, the presence of the kingdom of God now ought to result in experiences of that kingdom like healing and liberation, the sight being given to the blind. And those expectations ought to be physical and tangible and real-time experiences. Now that might seem like a whole big mess, but here's the bottom line for us. To varying degrees, we should absolutely expect experiences of the restorative kingdom to come, experience it in some way now, while also realizing that the fullness of that kingdom will only come one day when Jesus returns. It's a tension that we hold. We believe that God is able to do these great and miraculous and mighty things now and yet at the same time also recognize we won't always experience it fully until one day. You know, another example, another consequence, one that I think has continues to pervade much of the church today, is the other thing I had said earlier was that some, for some, they equate the kingdom of God with the church. And so if the church expands through conversions, so also does the kingdom of God expand as a result of the church growing. The problem is is that when Christians have believed that over the course of the centuries, it's actually led to some horrendous injustices um, as a result because, for many in the church, growth was the goal. And so conversion, by any means necessary, became justified. Explain to you what I mean. Over the course of church history, One of the justifications of the Crusades was this idea of expanding the kingdom of God through forced conversions. This was the justification for much of uh, European colonialism that was undergirded by decrees by the Pope that any land that was not possessed by Christians could be taken and that any person who was not a Christian could be put into perpetual servitude which gave license to the exploration of men like Columbus who believed it was a divine right to conquer for God because that meant that the kingdom was expanding. Church expansion and prioritization of conversions was the basis for the uh, the Puritan justification for enslavement. As long as the enslaved were spiritually evangelized, their enslavement was then justified because... That meant the kingdom of God was expanding if we could just convert the enslaved. And those ideas have not gone away. Many today still equate conversion with the kingdom of God expansion. I just heard this again not that long ago. Someone justifying African enslavement as an ultimate good because that's how Africans became Christians. And while that is, I could spend, I don't know, an entire day on why that's false, It's not my main point. As a side note, to be clear, African Christianity outdated European Christianity by multiple centuries. And most of the central doctrines of the church today, doctrines of God, doctrines of uh, Christology, came from African theologians. So no, 
Africans did not need European enslavers to learn about Christianity. But additionally, something else I was told not that long ago, and I ended up in an interesting dialogue with someone about it, is that acts of mercy, this idea of conversion being this primary thing about the kingdom of God, I was told that acts of mercy and justice really aren't worth it unless people are first converted. Quote, I just don't think it's worth it if they aren't saved. And such a perspective of the kingdom is full of error. It's incredibly truncated, and yet it's also still pervasive. That the kingdom of God is the church, and so the only goal is to expand the church, to expand the kingdom of God. However, because this is how the pattern's going, there's also a flip side error that we find that people tend to have as well. Because there are others who would say that the kingdom is about social issues. It is about acts of mercy and justice. And so as a result, the gospel is about addressing poverty and injustice and inequities and the like. But if that's the case, right, if the, if the Bible is teaching that the kingdom is really just about social issues, what do you do with verses 3-2 in our passage and also 4-17? I mean, what are we told to do in those passages? It tells us to repent for the kingdom is near. I mean, what is repentance? I mean, repentance is turning away from our sin and our rebellion to the kingdom of God. I mean, to repent literally means to turn or to move, or more literally, it means to change or convert one's mind. And the reason why that matters is that a gospel that doesn't include conversion and repentance, a gospel that doesn't include the church growing in that sense, is also a truncated view of the gospel. And that too is full of errors. Now, why do I lay all this out? I'll pause there because I could keep going. But I need us to realize that there are consequences to truncated understandings of the gospel. Now, next week, we're going to start talking about the nature and the character of the kingdom so that we have a better understanding of what it ought to look like for us today. And whether you've been a Christian for decades or maybe this is your first time in church, the subsequent weeks, I think, are going to challenge many of us to rethink the Christian faith. Because I think, and I know this to be true for myself, we've had a truncated view of the gospel. Because we've had a truncated view of the kingdom. But though the kingdom of God is complex and difficult to understand, I also want us to know that there's also a marvelous simplicity to the kingdom. There is a way to approach the kingdom that I actually think brings a lot of clarity for us on how we are called to live as kingdom people, and what it really means to pray, thy kingdom come. So having just laid out a lot of complexity, let me pull you all back in now and try to lay out for you some simplicity that we find in the kingdom. Several years ago, uh, Patrick Schreiner, who's a theologian, he wrote a book uh, on the kingdom of God in which he tries to, he seeks to uh, simplify uh, and summarize some of the vast thinking that's been done on what the kingdom of God is and in the book, he defines the kingdom in a way that I have found very helpful. And this is how he defines the kingdom. Right? could maybe summarize everything I've already said into this. That the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Okay? Repeat that. The kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And he argues that if, if uh, one of those elements is missing or is de-emphasized, that we actually then fall into error. But what does each of those mean? Well, the reason why I like that definition 
is that it acknowledges that the main focus of the kingdom is the king. So let's just start there. The simplicity of understanding the kingdom of God is to look at the king. A king who holds power, whose power is over his people who exist in a particular place. It also acknowledges that the kingdom includes his people who submit to that power while also recognizing that the people, the church, is not actually the kingdom. An important distinction. It also acknowledges that the king rules in a definable location and space, that location being over all things, all things that are spiritual and physical, temporal and eternal. This is what I find so interesting about this definition, is that it prioritizes the king in the way that king is ruling and reigning now over his people and in the world. And for us, I find that simplicity really helpful as we think about what it means to be the king's people. And here's what I'd like for us to maybe walk away with today. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be the king's people? I've shared this uh, with you before, but uh, there's been a helpful understanding uh, that came from John Calvin about the role of the church, the task of the church. Calvin put it this way, that the role of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. That's the goal of the church. J.I. Packer, who's an, another theologian, he similarly writes kind of drawing on Calvin's thought that the purpose of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. Here's why I find that so helpful. The church is certainly part of the kingdom of God, but it is distinct from the kingdom. They're not the same. So the church expanding is not an expansion of the kingdom of God. Rather, hear me, the church, the people of God, those part of the kingdom of God, are to reflect the characteristics of the kingdom and the king. That's the goal, to make this invisible kingdom visible now. A kingdom that we might not fully uh, experience until one day when Christ returns, but we make visible to a world now through our lives and through witness bearing. If you're a Christian, that is your call as a people of God to reflect this kingdom, the power and the characteristics of the king as kingdom people in the places that God calls us to be, which is everywhere. And what exactly are those characteristics? What exactly are we reflecting? Well, first and foremost, we need to reflect the fact that Jesus rules and that he is king. So first, we need, to, we need to acknowledge the fact that to be God's people, to be um, under the king, means to acknowledge him as king. We talked about this last week, but the question would be, are we submitted to him as a new authority? I mean, have we turned from other masters, including attempts to be our own master of our own life, and instead submitted to his lordship? And don't, so don't miss the fact that to be part of the kingdom of God is to be in submission to Jesus as a new king, we must start there. But also consider the king to whom we submit ourselves and how that informs how we reflect him. I mean, we serve a king who um, used his power to live in obedience to the will of the Father, doing so so that we might become the righteousness of God. He's become our righteousness, so now, as the king's people, what do we do? We now live in obedience and righteousness and holiness before God as a reflection of the king and his kingdom. 
We serve a king who, out of love, uses his power to call us to repentance and faith in himself so that now, as the king's people, we repent and we have faith in him. And we also call others to do the same. And as we do this, we reflect the king and his kingdom. You know, we serve a king who used his power to show unmatched compassion on the poor and the prisoner and the outsider and the foreigner and the forgotten and the weak, the powerless and the unclean. His mercy and his grace and compassion extended further than we could possibly comprehend. So now, as the king's people, we show that mercy and compassion. And as we do, it becomes a reflection of the king and his kingdom. We serve a king who used his power to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, and cause the lame to walk. So that now, as, his kings, as the king's people, we can pray with boldness and faith, believing that he's still able to do such things. And as we pray those kinds of bold prayers that he would do it, we reflect the king and his kingdom. But we also serve a king who used his power to suffer well, particularly in the garden when he asked the father if there was any other way for him to not have to go to the cross. But in the end, he trusted the father, even in the midst of this pending death, so that now, as a king's people, when we trust the will of God, even in the midst of suffering, even if that suffering leads us to death, in that faithfulness and in that trust, we are reflecting the king and his kingdom. We serve a king who used his power to think of others more than himself, to sacrificially love others to the point that he was willing to lay down his life on the cross for our salvation so that now, as the king's people, we lay down our lives and our convenience and our comforts and our pleasures for the good of others, sacrificially loving our families and our friends and our neighbors. And as we do, we reflect the king and his kingdom. And finally, we serve a king who uses his power, the power seen on his throne, a throne that Psalm 89 tells us is one of justice. We see a king of justice so that now as the king's people, when we work for justice in our work, in our school, in our in government, in communities, even if Christians are advocating for those who would never make a profession in Jesus, we're still reflecting the king and his kingdom. I mean, all of these things together is what it means to be part of the kingdom, to reflect the character of our king and his kingdom. See, the, the, the kingdom is certainly complicated, and it involves lots of nuanced thinking, but the kingdom is also simple, because if you are a Christian, the kingdom of God is living and reflecting the king and his power in all the places where he rules, which is all the places that you find yourself. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the kingdom is a kingdom that welcomes you into a place where all the promises of God are yours to be fully experienced one day if you would just have faith and trust in this king. And for all of us, if we want to understand the kingdom of God, ultimately, bottom line, the simplicity of it all is to look to the king. Theologians can continue to hammer out all the complexities of the kingdom. But let's together, in the words of Calvin, make visible this invisible kingdom, trusting the king, submitting to his power, reflecting his character, 
in all areas of our life. Let's look to Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in Jesus we see the fullness of your character. We get a picture of the kingdom that is to come. But we also have the hope in knowing that the kingdom is present because Jesus has come. And so, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get overly bogged down in all the complex thinking of the ways that theologians and the like have tried to understand the kingdom, but, Lord, we would find a simplicity to the kingdom, that simplicity being Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the things that Jesus calls us to be and to do. And may we see that as kingdom work. May we be a people that reflect his character. Well, may we be a people that point others to this kingdom in the ways that we live, in the witness that we proclaim. Jesus is why the gospel of the kingdom is good news. Fix our eyes on him. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.